You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present. And also recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance, and resilience for First Nations communities. Growing up, I had to eat everything on my plate. My mum didn't allow for any food to be thrown out. So I was pretty shocked when I discovered that not everyone's house followed the same rules. And different perspectives on food waste is probably one of the things I find hardest about living in a share house now as an adult. This week, we have two stories of valuable food being thrown out and people deciding to do something about it. First up, we're going to get some groceries, but we're not going inside the supermarket. Instead, we'll head around the back and take a look at what's in the bins. The lights are off, which is a good sign. What else we got in there? Charlie is on the hunt. So far, it's looking great. First bag that we've opened, and we got lots of delicious foods in here, so no complaints. My name is Charlie. I am a performer. I do still walking performance at festivals and events around Melbourne and around the state. But that's not all Charlie does. Once a week, Charlie dumpster dives for almost all of the food he consumes. Not because he can't afford it, but because he doesn't want to see it go to waste. Tonight, I'm meeting him at 10pm sharp for a group dive in Melbourne's northern suburbs. Hello. How's it going? We just moved into Massagool. That's Charlie's partner, Jenny. She introduced Charlie to dumpster diving almost five years ago. You want to have a look at our fridge? This is the kind of things we found also. Falafel, more strawberries, more ice cream. Yogurt is the same. Might have at least three, four kilograms of yogurt. All the greens. All is dying. Everything in the fridge. There's a number of reasons I do it now. The fact that you know the food is there regardless of whether you get it or not, it almost seems ridiculous to go inside the supermarket to get the food when it's sitting out the back. There's also a little bit of like an excitement factor as well, like what are we going to find? You feel a little bit naughty doing it, even after five years, it's still kind of like, ooh, find some treasures. But there are rules for keeping yourself safe. I find smell and taste are usually pretty good gauges of whether something's good or not. Sight, obviously, do a triage when you're at the bin, pulling out some apples. Some of them are looking a bit dodgy. You might leave those ones behind. After five years, having had zero issues, I think I'm probably a little bit less uh, strict than Virginia in what I eat. The yogurt can be a little bit older. A little bit of tang doesn't bother me. We've arrived. It's just us, a dimly lit empty car park and a bin. Open, sesame, open, ouvre-toi. So here you have a little free. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, there's a lot here, guys. Woohoo! This bag has some good stuff, I can see. Extra virgin olive oil. Oh, wow. Unopened. 
traditional Middle Eastern hummus. Oh, there's so much good stuff. It's when I see the stuff in the bin, I'm, I'm already thinking about what I'm gonna do with because it's so much. You're like, okay, so I can use that. If I have friends coming, I can do a big pot or I can take that for work. We hit the jackpot, finding boxes and boxes of Dutch chocolates that had just passed their best before. But it's chocolate, yeah. it's sugar, it's, it's packaged and preserved. It's travelled across the world to be here in this bin for us to find. Lamb and rosemary yeah. pie. So this is the part where we have to decide what to take and what not to take. This is kind of an every night occurrence. We take what we feel like we can use or redistribute. There's not enough hungry people to eat it all. It's definitely a systemic issue, like it's not, it's not a matter of what do we do with all this food, it's what, how do we change the system to prevent this food from arriving here in the first place. If you consider the sunk energy in an item of food, all of the water and the electricity and the energy that's gone into producing food items and the transport of food items across the world. Like we've seen items from various countries around the world tonight, which were brought here at an energy cost and then just got chucked out. And then this is the main problem, the intense, the intensity of how we produce our food today. And the fact that those people already know that half of it is going to be wasted. And this is not a problem for them. Um, <laughs> when you see stuff like one of the major supermarkets recently, I went in there for something small and they had a promotion that was encouraging shoppers to donate 50 cents to this Feed the Hungry of Melbourne campaign that they were having. And in their bin, it's like every single night enough food to feed all of the hungry people. Just kind of like, it's so hypocritical. It's so totally fake. That story was produced by Danielle O'Neill, Ina Kivsef, Doreen Lee and Christina Liu. Eugenia Zubchenko and Jordan Fennell were the supervising producers. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. All The Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. In our next story, Lottie and her dad attend a church potluck to celebrate Multicultural Day. When they arrive, Lottie looks around for the traditional Fijian food her dad contributed, but it's nowhere to be seen. Once we're foreigners... When a foreigner lives with you in your land, don't take advantage of him. Treat the foreigner the same, as if he were native-born. Love him like one of your own. Remember that you were once foreigners in Egypt. Leviticus 19, 33-34. All Saints Chapel looked like the kind of church that made you want to believe in God. Ivy climbed the length of its dark brick walls softening its appearance. Flowering jacaranda trees shaded the formidable building, looming on the crest of the street. The expansive car park led to the shining stained glass doors, and beyond that, rich beige carpet rolled out, and oak-panelled walls led to the inner sanctum of the church. All Saints Chapel looked like the kind of church that justified the hours I spent in the car every Sunday with Dad. 
Upon arrival, I saw a host welcoming members at the gateway, offering an enthusiastic handshake, a melodious greeting, or in our case, a bemused, nonchalant glance and a raised eyebrow at our willingness to make the weekly crawl out of Western Sydney towards the Upper North Shore. That Sunday morning as we arrived, I unstuck my pressed white blouse off my back from the leather seat of Dad's retro Mercedes, whose air conditioning had died with the 90s. The doors were left unattended as I followed Dad into church, and I waited for him to critique the host's absence. It was, after all, his long-coveted role, unwavering in his enthusiasm, despite never being granted the opportunity. But instead, I saw his shoulders relax as the cool air of All Saints Church engulfed us like a wave. Once inside, I sunk into the blue velvet seat in what was unofficially our pew. On the right-hand side, fifth row from the back. Up front, the choir amassed to lead the song service. The lights in the church softened and the conductor held out his hands. A hush settled over the congregation. All Saints not only looked like a church I wanted to believe in, but it sounded like one. The choir began, projecting a sound that I felt in my bones, a sound of certainty that God was, and also so much more than this red brick building on a hill. Dad, sitting next to me, was a hard one to miss, in a crisp, bold tangerine shirt with a matching tie. He'd paired it with a light grey sulu. I could still hear the whispers that had followed when Dad first began forsaking his dress pants, instead donning his traditional tailored sulus, extracting quizzical stares at the kilt-like garment. But he took it all in his stride, continuing to blend his penchant for bold colours with the pride of his Fijian heritage. Sharon stepped towards the pulpit, with the last notes from the first hymn still lingering in the air. A vivid yellow poster appeared on the screen behind Sharon, its reflection settling on her shoulders and offsetting her honey blonde hair like a halo. Multicultural potluck bounced across the screen in loud pink letters. I felt myself sit up straighter because somewhere between my year 10 formal, netball finals and the divorce, the annual potluck had rolled around again. I watched Sharon, the All Saints social committee queen, casting her eyes over the congregation. My dear brothers and sisters, Sharon purred, our service next week will be followed by our annual potluck lunch to celebrate the bounty of cultures that we are blessed to host in our house of God. She paused, punctuating her statement with a practiced but dazzling smile before continuing. I would like to invite you all to share in this feast with us. And if you feel called to, please don't hesitate to bring a plate of food which best represents your culture. I would also encourage all forms of traditional dress, she said, her eyes lingering on Dad before returning to the congregation. The pink letters on the screen slowly faded, making way for a collage of photos from previous potlucks. I surveyed the photos, but my face wasn't in the collection. Minor chords emanated from the organ as Sharon strutted back down the aisle and the congregation got on their knees to pray. After the service, 
the worshippers spilled out of the foyer and into the courtyard. Paris sauntered over, cups of peach iced tea in hand. So, Mum said I have to make baklava for the lunch, Paris said, running a manicured hand through her thick hair. Want to come help me, Lottie? I stifled a grin. I had been making baklava every year while Paris filed her nails in her polished kitchen and waxed lyrical about her latest crush. You know I'll be there, girl. Is your dad going to bring something too? I think he wants to. I mean, it is our first year, just the two of us. Paris put a hand on my arm and sipped her tea. Looks like he's putting his name down for something, Paris said. I followed her gaze and saw Dad heading in Sharon's direction. I broke away from Paris and caught up with him so that we reached Sharon together. She looked up from her clipboard, tucking a strand of blonde hair behind her ear. Well, hello, what can I do for you two? Dad described the food that he wanted to prepare for the multicultural lunch. Goat curry, lentil dal, roti and chop suey. I knew the menu well. It was a play-by-play of everything Dad used to cook for Sunday lunch at home. It was also the menu Sharon had enjoyed on the regular, back when she was our guest, back when Mum used to host All Saints social committee meetings that were actually just lunches around our dining table. Mum and Sharon, they were inseparable. Dad always said that was the real reason Mum wanted to return to her childhood church when they were searching for a new place of worship. Not for the choir or the pastor or the presence of God himself, but for this one friend who knew the person that she was before she fell in love with Dad, called Sharon. And here we were before her, Dad and I, trying to bring something to the table. Somewhere behind me, a baby fussed in the summer air, and the midday sun began to stream into the courtyard, burning my shoulders. Well, Eli is already bringing the fish and Agnes volunteered to bring roti, Sharon said, consulting her clipboard. She met Dad's gaze squarely. Okay, okay, he said with a nod. A grin spread across his face and the hint of a gold tooth gleamed under the sunlight. I'll bring yams, Sharon, taro and yams. Sounds delightful, she replied, tossing her blonde hair triumphantly. I watched as she penciled in the items and wrote Simon next to them. It's Simmy, I said, surprising myself with the projection of my voice. S-I-M-I. Sharon pursed her lips in a thin line before producing her practice smile, striking out her mistake loudly on the white sheet of paper. Well, sometimes your mother used to call him Simon, Sharon said under her breath. I wanted to ask Sharon if that was before mum's affair or after. Or was it during those special moments that they had spent at our dining table? Blonde heads bent over the glare of their laptop screens, dreaming up the next event at All Saints. I wanted to ask Sharon if she knew about mum and the boyfriend and the trips to Melbourne. But mostly I wanted to ask Sharon if she knew that dad and I would cement ourselves at All Saints in the aftermath of the divorce. Or did she think a new family would take up residence on the right hand side, fifth row from the back? On Tuesday, the three o'clock bell sounded as Paris and I emerged from the school gates, our uniforms looking crumpled in the sticky heat. Dad's weathered Mercedes was parked at the curb. Taro and Yams weren't what Dad envisioned for his potluck contribution, but his enthusiasm was infectious just the same. I guess we're taking a rain check on Baklava, huh, Lottie? Paris said at the sight of Dad waiting for me in the car. Yeah, I'm sorry, I said 
slinging an arm over Paris's shoulders. Looks like I'm going shopping. The Mercedes spluttered after picking me up, then proceeded to glide down Cabramatta Road. The bitumen rippled under us as the hot air circulated through the vehicle. Redemption song drifted from the speakers. The Mercedes took us past thick concrete walls smothered in graffiti, running the length of railway parade. Ahead, I saw two teenagers rocking Nike TNs, hovering close to the wall with aerosol cans in hand, honing in on the image of a cat with a cigar in its mouth. Dad cranked the volume as the Mercedes chased the train tracks. Patel's Bazaar was located down a cracked driveway running parallel to a wired fence. The shop sat behind a massage parlour with a red light in the window that flashed occasionally. I followed Dad through the yellowed glass door and ambled towards the freezer. The air was dense with aromatics and I stifled a sneeze as a nearby fan lethargically sent a whiff of turmeric in my direction. Any cassava today, boss? Dad asked, smiling. All out, my friend, Patel called from the counter. Finished. No worries, no worries. I try the shops in Minto. You hungry? Dad called for me over his shoulder. I could eat, I said, thinking back to the moussaka Paris and I had devoured at lunch. Paris's mum had folded lamb mints through the mix this time, leaving the two of us nodding off in fifth period maths. Dad and I found a seat at a rickety table in a tiny fur restaurant on High Street. He perched on a small wooden red stool that looked as though it may not support his large frame. Piping hot bowls of fur landed in front of us. Through the rising steam, I watched Dad heap coriander and Vietnamese mint on top. He was clinical, squeezing two wedges of lime over the herbs and dousing the contents in chilli. The woman at the table next to us, who had sat hunched over her fur, was looking at Dad intently and flashed us a toothy grin. I sipped my broth gingerly before reaching for the sriracha. I think I'll build a lover to cook the food, Dad said between mouthfuls of silky noodles. I piled a mountain of beef into my mouth and nodded eagerly. It was close to 363 days since our last lover, when I had crouched in the shadows of dusk and watched him unearth the fish from the pit, while Mum lingered near the kitchen window, earpods firmly attached, the outline of her back visible through the glass. The snapper had been a hit at last year's All Saints potluck. If I closed my eyes, I could still see Mum carrying the tray of fish into the hall, arms held slightly away from her body. Just taro and yams this year, huh? Dad chuckled. I pushed my chopsticks through the broth. The beef was beginning to congeal in my mouth, and I chewed furiously. Taro and yams seemed a fitting offering from a family reduced to two members. For a moment, I thought Dad might chuckle at this too, but instead, I placed my hands on the sticky laminate table and swallowed the words whole. A lobo sounds good, Dad. We stopped at the fruit shop in Minto on our way home. It was busy for a Tuesday afternoon. Pineapples were piled hazardously, bookending the vegetable aisle where bok choy and snake beans looked to spill over already full trays. A trolley sputtered past, and a little boy peered out at me, all brown skin and smiles. I grinned back, watching him poke holes in the pink flesh of a watermelon at his feet. 
From out the back of the store, a short Indian man appeared, bags of taro in hand. Hey, Simi, he called loudly. I got the goods for you, my brother. Dad turned to him and offered a reply that I missed. The Indian man doubled over and slapped his knees as Dad animatedly patted him on the back. He turned, showing me the bag of produce. This is the good stuff, Lottie. Oh, we're going to have a feast on Sunday. On Friday, after netball practice and dinner with Paris, I arrived home to our yellow brick house, bathed in darkness. Only a shred of silver emanated from the spotlight. I found Dad in the backyard, over a sizable hole at the end of the shovel. The whites of his eyes were fluorescent in the moonlight. I kicked off my school shoes and crouched in the dirt next to the hole. Dad sat down next to me, and together we formed a production line, wrapping foiled pieces of taro in banana leaves as the silence of the night settled around us. On Saturday, I crouched over the pit as Dad lifted the parcels one by one from the lobo, the oven arising out of the earth. He peeled away the banana leaves with soft hands, despite the heat from the ground. The afternoon sun spilled in over the fence. Dad peered through the foil, a wide grin forming as he looked up, hands outstretched. I leaned across the hole in the ground and smiled back. The taro was perfect. On Sunday, entering All Saints for the potluck, it was clear that Sharon had outdone herself. National flags dripped from the walls and a cluster of red lanterns hung low from the ceiling. Banquet tables ran the length of the room, already heavily laden with platters of food. I spotted Paris, stationed at a table inspecting her nails, while her mother fussed over plates of baklava and hissed at Paris under her breath. Dad was two steps ahead, a large aluminium tray in his hands, overflowing with taro, yams and cassava. I fell into step with him and smoothed my hair as we reached Sharon. Her interpretation of cultural dress was clearly an homage to the monarchy. Canary yellow suit and a string of fat pearls. A small tiara sat daintily atop her coiffed hair. I offered a smile, all teeth, as Sharon regarded us coolly. Your Highness, Dad said, attempting a curtsy and a chuckle. Where would you like this? Sharon stiffened slightly. Her eyes roved over the tray and flicked across to the table. Ah, Simon, she plastered on a smile. You shouldn't have. Here, allow me. Sharon's arms protruded out from her body robotically as Dad handed over the tray. I'll see that it gets put out, she said. After the blessing, Paris and I worked our way through the buffet. The tables overflowed with sticky rice pudding, bubbling Rogan Josh and mountains of pilaf. Paris heaped a spoonful of raw fish onto her plate and surveyed the table. Lots, where is your dad's food? I scanned across the long and busy table. Dad was at the other end. I watched him break into a wide smile as Eli approached him, balancing a plate with a large severed fish head. I haven't seen it yet. Can you check the other table again, Riss? I'll look in the kitchen. A large pot sat bubbling on the stove when I entered the kitchen, and the island bench top was just visible under a vast array of desserts. A pair of black fridges hummed in the corner. Pavlova and rows of orange juice greeted me when I opened the double doors, but there was no trace of the offering my dad had made. From the back of the service corridor, I saw a hunched figure in yellow. As I got closer, 
the outline of the aluminium tray was unmistakable. I stopped, air trapped in my lungs. Frozen in place, I watched Sharon shake the tray vigorously, shoveling the contents into the squat plastic bin before dusting her hands and disappearing through the back courtyard. I regained my breath. I approached the bin. The foil tray lay crumpled on top. I lifted it and the earthy scent of the taro drifted up subtly. Grabbing a sparkling china plate from the cupboard, I began gently removing my dad's food from the bin, gingerly selecting the pieces that hadn't landed on the remnants of chicken bones. I cradled the largest piece of taro in my hands. It was still warm and I took out a big bite. Behind me, the large pot on the stove began to boil over. I re-entered the hall with a plate in one hand, half-eaten taro in the other. Dad had moved to the far right corner with Eli. He stood up as I approached. Dad, your food is a hit. This is all that's left, I said, taking another bite. He let out a whistle before gesturing to Eli and the men behind him. Offer some to your uncles. I will, I will. But I just want to make sure Sharon and the elders don't miss out. Sharon was standing in a semicircle with the pastor and a few elders. A small piece of baklava sat untouched on her plate. She jumped at my voice, sounding out her name, her fork clattering to the floor. What a spread. You should be so proud, Sharon, I said, bending to retrieve the fork and holding it out. Well, thank you, Lottie. That's very kind of you, Sharon said, grabbing at the fork. Now, what have you got here, Lottie? The pastor said, stepping forward, his fingers hovering over the plate. I watched him select a yam and bite into the purple flesh. Yams and taro pasta. My dad cooked them. Sharon's fork was suspended in midair as the pastor reached for a second piece. They're beautiful, Lottie. Thank you for bringing them over, he said. You're welcome. I just had to make sure you good folks didn't miss out. I turned to face Sharon, my arm outstretched with Dad's offering. The china felt cold against my skin. My eyes honed in on the beads of sweat glistening on Sharon's upper lip. I took another bite of the taro. Sharon inhaled sharply. Somewhere behind us, someone opened a window. A breeze danced around the hall, rippling the flags. And as lunch was starting to be cleared away, the first flag fell. It carried the shades of red, white, and royal blue. Written for Debris Magazine by Ida Marie Rolando, with sound design by Mel Chun. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present.
All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land, in association with Sin and 3RRR, on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands, and 8RCCC, on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Timothy Nguyen is our social media producer and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can listen back to our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.